Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. chapter 15. I actually titled this chapter, uh, and again, I don't do that all the time, but I actually uh, titled this, When You Get to the Promised Land. And I don't know how many of you have actually read through the book of Numbers, you know, maybe as part of a going through the year, you know, reading through the Bible in a year or, you know, in your devotional time, you're like, you know, I'm going to read through the book of Numbers. Um, it's kind of interesting when you get to chapter 14, you know, a lot of it is, narr- well, almost all of it is narration. So you get through chapter uh, 14, you, you read about what happened there. We talked about that last week. Um, and, you know, and then you get to Numbers 15 and it's like, it's almost seems like it's a repeat of some other chapters that you maybe you read in Leviticus or in Exodus having to do with sacrifices, laws about sacrifices and stuff and, and sins, you know, unintentional and intentional sins we'll talk, or presumptuous sins. We'll talk about that later. Uh, about the Sabbath and it's like this seems like it's a repeat and and so you go what's the deal here and what's interesting to me is that it's very significant I think in this exactly where it is in the story in the narration that we're reading through the book of Numbers. What had just happened think about it what had just happened in chapter 14 spies uh, the Lord had, or actually, uh, the children of Israel, they sent, or Moses, I should say, sent spies in uh, to take a look at the Canaan, to take a look at the promised land, to spy it out, see what it's like. And uh, as we talked about last week, it really was the people's idea to do this. It wasn't necessarily uh, Moses's plan, and it certainly wasn't God's plan. Um, although when you read it in that chapter, it seems like God's commanding it. We talked about that. If you, if you want to pick up on that you could probably listen to last week's message and where we talked about that but anyways the spies went into Canaan and uh, they came back and they said boy it sure is a land flowing with milk and honey uh, but boy there's giants in the land the cities are walled and we look like grasshoppers and and uh, their bad report turned the nation of Israel the children of Israel it turned their fear into unbelief they, they basically said, God's brought us out here to die. And that unbelief, and it happens in us too, when unbelief is unchecked or undealt with, for them, it turned into rebellion. And that's when they said, let's select a different leader to take us back to Egypt. And if you remember the story last week, God was ready to wipe out the children of Israel and start a new nation with Moses and his descendants after him. And if it had not been for the intercession of Moses, that would have happened. Well, as you follow that story, the 10 spies, because there's 12 of them, two of them didn't give a bad report. 10 of them that did, they end up dying shortly afterward. And then God tells that generation of whiners and complainers and grumblers and rebellious children of Israel, he says, you're going to die in the wilderness. You're never going to make it to the promised land. Um, And so uh, they basically are told that they're going to wander 40 years, one year for each day that the spies were in the, the nation of Canaan spying it out. And, you know, 
rather than accepting the Lord's uh, discipline, because the Lord was disciplining or chastening the children of Israel, they go, okay, well, you know what? We were wrong. We're going to go ahead and we're going to invade Canaan. And they go in and they try to invade Canaan. Moses doesn't go in. In fact, Moses warns them, don't do this. But, but they go in to try to invade, they try to invade Canaan. Moses isn't with them and the Ark of the Covenant doesn't go with them either. And they are beaten back out of Canaan. So it's kind of a, a kind of a downer story when you read that chapter, and God was ready to wipe them out. Skipping over to uh, chapter 16, which we won't cover today, we will next week, Lord willing. Um, next week, we'll be talking about a rebellion, another rebellion by the name of a guy by Korah. And so you have kind of a sandwich. You have rebellion, fear, unbelief, rebellion on one side, and then you have this outright rebellion in this other chapter. Those are two chapters. And you have this one chapter right in between. And you go, well, why is that? It seems non-secular, right? It's like, why is it there in the middle? Again, I titled this, When You Get to the Promise. I think that's why I titled it. When You Get to the Promise, I look at my notes. <laughs> Well, let's look at this. Chapter 15, verses 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have come into the land, you are to inhabit, which I am giving to you. And I'll stop right there. He didn't say, If you get into the promised land, but when you get into the promised land. They're in the wilderness right now. They've been spared God's wrath through Moses' intercession. Um, they've been chastened for their rebellion. That generation is going to die in the wilderness. They'll never make it into the promised land, but their children will. And so here, God has made this promise. He says, when you get into the promised land. So last week I made a comment and I said, you may escape Egypt and it's speaking about us, and we'll talk about it. You may escape Egypt and yet miss Canaan. And you go, maybe you're here today and you weren't following that. You're like, what is he talking about? Egypt in the Bible is a picture of the world. The children of Israel were in bondage to Egypt. And it's a picture of, of a person who's in bondage to sin before coming to Christ. That's what Egypt is a picture of. The world, we might say. The wilderness, of course, they, the children of Israel were, de were delivered from bondage in Egypt, but now they're wandering in the wilderness. The Lord God is giving them the Ten Commandments. He's revealing himself to them in a greater way. So during that time, they're learning about the Lord. And same with you and I. When we become, when we, uh, you know, we turn, our, our, we turn from our sins, we repent of them, we put our trust in Christ for our salvation. Now we're in this place we've been freed from, uh, from you know, we're no longer slaves to sin, but now we're in this place where we're growing. We're learning about the Lord. We're learning about ourselves. Um, we're being transformed and having that mentality of being a slave to sin. And that's what the children of Israel, they're going through this transformation process in the wilderness. Well, what is Canaan? You know, it's, it's called the promised land, right? And, and, and sometimes we think, well, Canaan, so, okay, they've been, they've, they've come out of the world, they're in the wilderness, they're growing and stuff, and then Canaan must be heaven. But like I shared last week, if that's heaven, man, I hope it's not a picture of heaven because they had giants to slay in Canaan. They had enemies to fight. They had territory to capture. Man, I pray that when we get to heaven, there's not like, okay, you guys, you still have some stuff you got to do. Man, I hope that's not the case, and I don't think it is. 
So what if, if that's not heaven, what is Canaan? And last week I said, you know, Canaan, I believe, is the deeper walk with the Lord this side of heaven. It's when we're walking in the spirit. It's when you and I are slaying giants in our own lives. The things that are, that are, you know, that we've always struggled with. We're slaying those. We're taking territory from the enemy. That's what I think Canaan is a picture of. D.L. Moody's got a book, and I think the title of the book kind of fits it. The Victorious Christian Life. That's what I think Canaan is. And so here... The Lord tells them, when you have come into the land which you are to inhabit, which I am giving to you. You know, that must have been just a comfort to the children of Israel. Because here's the point. The children of Israel's unfaithfulness does not change God's promise. That should be a comfort for you and I as well. Our unfaithfulness doesn't change God's promise. Paul wrote this in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. There should be whooping and hollering right now. Yeah, <laughs> All right, there, thank you. I paid her to do that. Um, <laughs> what blows me away is even in the midst of God's chastening, because now they're going to wander in the wilderness for 40, 40 years, even when God knows chapter 16 is coming up next, <laughs> when they're once more going to be grumbling, complaining, and rebelling about, uh, to them, or about him, I should say, he still gives them hope. And that's what this chapter is about, God's hope. Again, I always like to look for the application for you and I. And I look at, look at what Paul wrote in Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Yeah. So this morning, hope is for you and I. Romans 15, verse thir uh, 13, later on in that chapter, Paul says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why should we have hope? Well, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the verse that, kill, that, that kills, that, 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 it's the big thing. <laughs> he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. God's going to bring the children of Israel into the promised land. God is going to bring you and I into that place of a deeper walk with him. And so there's hope for you and I. Um, let's continue on here. I'll back up here again to verse 2, and then we'll read on to verse 12. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you have come into the land you are to inhabit, which I am giving to you, and you make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a freewill offering or in your appointed feasts to make a sweet aroma to the Lord from the herd of the flock. Then he who presents his offering to the Lord shall bring a grain offering of one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hin of oil and one-fourth of a hin of wine as a drink offering you shall prepare with the burnt offering or the sacrifice for each lamb. Or for a ram you shall prepare as a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hin of oil. 
And as a drink offering, you shall offer one third of a hint of wine as a sweet aroma to the Lord. And when you prepare a young bull as a burnt uh, offering, or as a sacrifice to fulfill a vow, or as a peace offering to the Lord, then shall be offered with the young bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with half a hen of oil. And you shall bring as the drink offering half a hen of wine as an offering made by fire a sweet aroma to the Lord. Thus it shall be done for each young bull, for each ram, and for each lamb or young goat. Goat, excuse me. According to the number that you prepare, so you shall do uh, with everyone according to their number. So, they're in the wilderness. They do have flocks. They've got tons of herds. You know, they've got, they have lots of animals with them. But listen, they don't have any grain fields in the wilderness to glean. They have no olives to press to make oil. They have no vineyards to harvest. So what is God telling them? This is God saying, when you get into the promised land, this is what I want you to do. This is looking forward to when they're in Canaan. There's a lot of symbolism here. Grain, the, the grain offering, a fine flour. What it really speaks of is thankfulness, thanksgiving. Olive oil, when you go through the Bible, oil almost invariably speaks of the anointing of the Holy Spirit. And wine speaks of joy. So there's some symbolism that we're going to look at this morning as well. What about the burnt offering? And we've talked about this before, but the burnt offering was an animal that was sacrificed and it was completely consumed on the altar. Uh, the drink offering was a, a, a glass or a thing of wine that was poured out into the flames on the altar and was completely evaporated, completely consumed on the altar. And those offerings both speak of complete consecration and dedication to the Lord. I gotta not touch my iPad. <laughs> Things happen when I do that. <laughs> Those sacrifices were to be offered with the grain, the wine, and the oil. We look at the symbolism of them. Those things that's a complete consecration and dedication to the Lord were to be offered with emblems that speak of joy and thankfulness in the Holy Spirit. Philippians 2 verse 17, speaking of a drink offering, Paul says this, Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. You look at Paul's life. His life was like the drink offering. It was completely, he just, he just poured himself out for the Lord. He didn't reserve. There was no reservation in Paul. It's like he had like this, you know, uh, you know he, would, he, would, he would be in ministry like six days a week and the seventh day, man, he just went off and did his own thing, went fishing or something. Like, no, no, he poured himself out just like a drink offering. The free will offerings mentioned in this passage as well. A free will offering, some of these offerings were required for the children of Israel. The free will offering is, hey, the Lord just lays something on your heart and you want to give it to the Lord. That's what the free will offering is. That was to be offered with thankfulness and joy as well. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 9 verse 7. So let each one give as he purposes in heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
the offering for the fulfillment of a vow that's mentioned in here for festivals. The, 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 the children of Israel had several festivals that they were to go and offer sacrifices. And the peace offerings, all of those were to be rendered with thanksgiving and joy. And all were to be done under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. You know, it's interesting when you get to the book of Galatians in the New Testament, Paul addresses the churches in Galatia that had, they were born again Christians, but their, their faith in Christ was starting to turn into religious sacrifices. They started to get back into legalism and it was becoming devoid of the, of the, whole, of the Holy Spirit. In fact, he addresses it in Galatians 3.3. 3. He says, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit? Are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Jesus said in John 4:24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So what's happening in this chapter here? They know about these offerings because God's already instructed them, but now he's giving them more information. He's giving them a deeper knowledge about it. He's, he's telling them, I want you to add these other things. And we talked about what the, those things were a symbol of. Not only were the children of Israel instructed um, in the addition of these components with their sacrifices, but if you notice as I read through those verses, it was a, it was a progressive thing. In other words, the, there was a proportional amounts of these different components added to these sacrifices based on the value of the sacrifice. For you and I, what's the greatest sacrifice you can offer? Well, let me flip it around. What's the greatest sacrifice that was offered for us? It's Jesus Christ, right? You and I, he gave of himself. He was the drink offering. He was the burnt offering. He was the sin offering. He was the peace offering. All those sacrifices point to Jesus Christ, and there's no greater sacrifice than what Jesus Christ did for you and I on the cross. And Paul reflects on that in 2 Corinthians 9.15, and he says, Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Why am I bringing that up? I have a rhetorical question for you and for me. Should a believer in Christ Jesus, who's been saved from an eternity in hell, saved from that, no longer has to worry about going to hell to be separated from God for eternity. They've been saved from that. They've been forgiven of their sins. They've been healed. They've been restored. They've been given hope not only in this life, but in the life to come. Should a person like that, should they not abound in thankfulness? Right? Should they not abound in joy? Should they not be submitted to the Holy Spirit in all areas, all areas of their lives? See, for you and I, as you and I grow in our relationship with the Lord, as we go into that deeper walk with Christ, the more you grow, the more you mature in your faith, the more you realize it's like, you know what? Ah, man, I can't do this on my own strength. I need the Holy Spirit. There's a greater understanding of Christ's sacrifice for us, and there's also should be, and I think there is naturally a greater amount of thanksgiving and joy. You can see that in the life of Paul as he's, as he's writing his letters, the progressive, as he goes through his life, you know, the chronological order of the letters that he wrote. You see his, the transformation taking place in his heart where he's just like, he realizes, man, how much he depends on the Holy Spirit. So the children of Israel were given hope 
that God would bring the next generation into the promised land. And they were told when to, uh, when they get there and they offer these sacrifices, hey, I want you to add these other things to the sacrifices in proportion to, to the, the, the value of the sacrifice. And then he continues here in verse 13. All who are native born shall do these things in this manner in presenting an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if a stranger dwells with you or, who, or whoever is among you throughout your generations and would present an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so shall he do. One ordinance shall be for the whole... Uh, one ordinance shall be for, uh, for you of the assembly and for the stranger who dwells with you, an ordinance forever throughout your generations. So you are, so shall the stranger be before the Lord. One law and one custom shall be for you and for the stranger who dwells with you. Now you might say, well, we know actually from uh, the account in Exodus that there were, was a mixed multitude that went with the children of Israel. It wasn't just the children of Israel that left Egypt. There was probably some Egyptians that left, uh, maybe some other, uh, some other aliens, you know, non-Egyptian people that were in the land that saw how God was blessing Israel, saw how terrible it was in Egypt, and they decided to go with them. And so there was a mixed multitude in the wilderness, but we also know when they get to the land of Canaan and they're supposed to drive out all these other, uh, these other nations, they don't fully do it. And some of them dwell alongside them. And God sees that and says, hey, when the stranger is there, if they, if they want to seek me, they can. But they have to go through the same ordinance as you do. They have to do the same sacrifices as you do. I have an article here. It was posted by the Catholic News Agency, and it's, it's a little bit old. It's dated December 11th, 2015. But I want to read this to you. It says, the Vatican takes on tense question of salvation for the Jewish people. Though it is and remains an unfathomable divine mystery, this is what the Catholic group said, Jews can participate in salvation without expressing Christ explicitly. A Vatican committee said in a document released on Thursday, a committee of the Pontif Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity issued a document December 10th which discusses theological questions regarding Catholic-Jewish relations. In particular, it deals with the tension between the universality of salvation in Christ and God's unrevoked covenant with the Jewish people. Another focus for Catholics must continue to be the highly complex theological question of how Christian belief in the universal salvic, salvisic, <laughs> I think that's how they pronounce it, significance of Jesus Christ can be combined in a coherent way with the equally clear statement of faith in the never revoked covenant of God with Israel, the document, the document states. And this is the name, title of the document. The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, as the December 10th document is known, also discusses the church's mandate to evangelize in relation to Judaism. It says that the church does not support any specific institutional mission work directed towards Jews, though Christians are nonetheless called to bear witness to their faith in Jesus Christ also to Jews. So what they're saying is, God has this covenant he's made with Israel that cannot be revoked. And so a Jewish person, uh, they're under that covenant. They don't have to put their faith in Christ Jesus for salvation. 
They did get it right in one sense. God's covenant with the nation of Israel cannot be revoked. And there are some Protestant churches that believe that the church has replaced Israel with regard to the covenants and the promises. That's known as replacement theology. But I think what, the, what, what this group, this Catholic group did is they have a misunderstanding of, a Rome, of Romans 11 verses 25 through 29. I want to read that to you. It says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And that's where they get this, 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 this whole concept that they're teaching. That promise in scripture does not exclude requirement that they put their faith in Christ Jesus. Because we know in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, it says there is salvation, uh, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So in order for a Jewish person uh, to be saved, they still have to put their faith in Christ Jesus just like any other Gentile would have to. You might say, well, what about Romans 11? Well, I think Zechariah 12, verse 10 speaks about it. Let me read that to you. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And this is what I believe. What I believe during the great tribulation, after the Antichrist has revealed himself, because at first in the beginning, Israel, the Antichrist, they're going to think he's the Messiah. They're, they're going to think he's it because he brings all this peace. No, no, don't start thinking about Trump, okay? We're not talking about But he's going to say, he's bringing all this peace, man. He's, he's got to be the Messiah. And, uh, and, and, and they're going to they're gonna start looking that he must be the one because this Messiah is going to, or this false Messiah is going to allow them to build a temple in Jerusalem. And so, you know, it seems like everything's fitting together. But at a certain point, halfway through this tribulation, this seven-year period, he's going to reveal himself to be a counterfeit Messiah. And I believe at that time there's going to be an outpouring based on Zechariah 12.10, an outpouring of God's spirit on the Jewish people. And that generation that are alive during the great tribulation, they're going to recognize that Jesus Christ is their Messiah. But they're still going to have to put their trust in him. And yet they will, according to Zechariah 12.10. In mass, they all will. So under the old covenant, like, we're, like we just read here, the same sacrifice is applied to all people that, wanna, that have a desire to approach God. Under the new covenant, which you and I are under, the same sacrifices uh, were completed by Christ Jesus at Calvary. They apply to all people, no matter who you are or where you're from or what religion you're following or whatever. If you, wanted, if you truly want to know God, it can only be through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Verses 13 through 16 not only stressed that they have the same ordinance, but the fact that the ordinances would not change over time. 
you think about it. You know, one of the songs we, we sang tonight, or this morning, I should say, was written by John Newton, right? The guy's been gone for a long time. John Newton, I'm, I'm looking for our worship leader. He was a slave trader, right? John Newton, wasn't, it, wasn't he? No, he wasn't. Never mind. <laughs> I'm thinking of Isaac Newton. But anyways, John Newton, he's, he's been dead for a while. <laughs> I guess I blew that. Um, but, but listen, that generation, we're singing some old songs that have been recomposed and everything, but the gospel message is the same. It hasn't changed. It's the same. It's, it was the same for the first generation of Christians as it is for you and I. And it will be the same for the next generation after us. And that's why I think it is so important for each generation to teach the next generation about Jesus Christ. It's so important for parents and grandparents to teach their children and grandchildren about Jesus Christ because they themselves will one day have to put their trust in Christ as well. That will never change. Anyone wants to come to the Father, it can only be through faith in Christ. So moving along here, verse 17 Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land to which I bring you, then it will be when you eat the bread of the land that you shall offer up a heave offering to the Lord. You shall offer up a cake of the first of your ground meal as a heave offering, as a heave offering uh, of the threshing floor. So you shall offer it up on the first of your ground meal. Of the first of your ground meal, you shall give to the Lord a heave offering throughout your generations. So again, this is when they get to the promised land, the land that's known as flowing with milk and honey. The Bible talks about bountiful blessings. When you get there and you've got this wonderful harvest, they were to offer the first fruits of their harvest as a heave offering. What's a heave offering? It's not you eat something, you get a tummy ache, and you, you know, that's not a heave offering. A heave offering is you take, you take your, your, whatever you're offering, and you hold it up, and you say, Lord, this is for you, and then you partake. It's like saying, Lord, it, it belongs to you. I'm just giving it to you. That's what the heave offering was. It's lifted up and separated to the Lord. You know, in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, I think that's the concept behind tithing for believers, the principle, I think, of tithing is as the Lord blesses, you give back to the Lord in proportion to the blessing. You know, we give back to the Lord of our first fruits, but when we give, we give it to the Lord, this is my first fruits. I'm just, I want to I give it back to you. But we recognize it all belongs to the Lord anyways, right? He's the one that's given us the income. He's the one that's given us the, the knowledge to do our whatever our profession is. He's the one that keeps us healthy to do it. I mean, all those things, it all comes from the Lord. And so it's like, Lord, I just want to, I want to acknowledge that and I'm giving it back to you. That's what the tithe really is. And it's interesting that it's the first portion rather than any other portion. Why? Well, because it's honoring the Lord, but also, and I can speak of this in my own life, if I don't give of the first fruits, there's a tendency to go, you know what, I'm, I'm down to this and I can't afford to give it now because I've given, I've done everything else and I can tend to justify why I wouldn't, why I need this or whatever. And so I always give to the Lord. Teresa and I, we've done that throughout our marriage, throughout our married life together. We just give of the first fruits to the Lord and, and uh, we go on from there. And I can tell you, God has never failed us. He's provided for us always. We've never gone without, 
and sometimes it's been like it's it's been miraculous well a lot of times it's been miraculous but you know there have been times it's like it comes from a, just a source you would have never expected but God has never left us without and and so that's that whole principle with tithing so I think that's what this is is pointing to for you and I and we get to verse 22 now it says, if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by the hand of Moses from the day the Lord gave you commandment, excuse me, from the day the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it will be if it is unintentionally committed without the knowledge of the congregation, that whole congregation shall offer one young bull as a burnt offering, as a sweet aroma to the Lord, with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the ordinance, and one kid of the goats as a sin offering." So the priest shall make atonement for the whole congregation of the children of Israel, and it shall be forgiven them. For it was unintentional. They shall bring their offering, an offering made by fire to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their unintended sin. It shall be forgiven the whole congregation of the children of Israel and the stranger who dwells among them, because all the people did it unintentionally. And if a person sins unintentionally, and he shall, then he shall bring a female goat in its first year as a sin offering. So the priest shall make atonement for the person who sins unintentionally, when he sins unintentionally before the Lord, to make atonement for him, and it shall be forgiven him. You shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally, for him who is a native born among the children of Israel, and for the stranger who dwells among them." So I, this would not only apply to when they get to the promised land, but it would also apply there and then, right? They had to offer a sacrifice because sin always has to be addressed. But he is pointing to the promised land there. And he says, if you sin unintentionally, you go, well, what do you mean by unintentionally? The word is sagah, the Hebrew word, and it's a verb meaning to stray, to go astray, to err to deceive, to wander, to make a mistake, to reel. It is primarily used to express the idea of straying or wandering, but it can also mean to morally transgress. It's kind of a broad definition. John Gill says this, gone astray, speaking about this word, gone astray from the law of God and any of its precepts. Every sin is an error, a missing of the mark, a wandering from the way of God's commandments. This is, we're talking about unintentional sin. It's going to be contrasted to presumptuous sin in verse 30, but we're not going to look at that just yet. You know, when, we, when you think of unintentional sins, you know, you may think, you know, you've done something and, and you know, it was a sin, it was wrong, whatever you did, and you might go, well, well, you know, I had good intentions in what I did. The issue isn't what your intentions are. It doesn't matter if you think your intentions are good or bad. If it's sin, it still needs to be addressed. It still needs to be atoned for. You know, again, go back to the context. Chapter 14 they were in disobedience, in rebellion. In chapter 16, they're going to be in disobedience and rebellion. They've already sinned, and God knows they're going to sin in the wilderness in the next chapter. And even in the promised land, they're going to continue sin. Even when they're in that deeper walk, they're still going to sin. But you see God's heart here. What is God's heart? It was revealed to us 
in Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the fourth, uh, to the third and the fourth generation. Our God is long-suffering and abundant in mercy. Peter picks up on that in his letter. It says that, that God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You see, for you and I, and for them, God knew that they would sin. Why? Because they're sinners. God knows that you and I will sin because we're sinners by nature. But yet here he provides a way for them to be forgiven. And if you look at it, verse 25, it says it shall be forgiven. Verse 26, it shall be forgiven. Verse 28, it shall be forgiven. God, if you kind of get the idea, God wants to forgive his children. And the same is true for you and I. God's provided a way for you and I to be forgiven through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. 1 John 1, verse 8 and 9 says this, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's my favorite verse in the Bible because I, I read it so often, because I lean on it so often. You know, I don't think I would be in trouble adding that not only is God faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, but he's ready and willing to forgive us of our sins. And so here, they've sinned. They're going to sin. They're going to sin in the promised land. And God says, you're going to do it, but here, I'm making a way for you to make atonement. I'm making a way. And of course, he did for you and I by dying on the cross for us. But here's the contrast, verse 30. But the person who does anything presumptuously, whether he is native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord, and he shall be cut off from among his people, because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. Not only in the promised land, but even in the wilderness, if you sin presumptuously, you will be cut off from the Lord. That word presumptuously, it literally means with a high hand. Tory said this, that is bold, daring, deliberate acts of transgression against the fullest evidence and in despite of the divine authority. Such conduct reproacheth the Lord as if his commandments were needless, unreasonable and immical to the happiness of man. His favor were not desirable, or his wrath not to be feared. In short, it, in short, as if it were more advantageous to rebel against him than to serve him. Such acts admitted of no atonement. The person was condemned to bear his own iniquity and to be cut off. That's the high hand. It's like raising your fist against God, saying, I don't need you and I don't want you. That's presumptuous sin. In the New Testament, I believe that that speaks of the unforgivable sin that we read about in the New Testament, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, raising your fist at God and rebelling, no desire for forgiveness, and never coming to a place of repentance. Because there are some people that have raised their fists at God and then later on they've come to repentance. But this is the person who's never comes to repentance. They never 
they're constantly throughout their life resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Well, listen, there's nothing more than the, that the Lord can do for them because God's not going to force a person to repent and put their trust in him. He's not going to force anybody. So you get to that point, it's like, what, what, what more can God do to turn a person to him? So that's the difference between unintentional and presumptuous sin. Well, now we get this little story here, verse 32. Now, while the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering sticks were brought, uh, brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. They put him under guard because it had not been explained what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. So as the Lord commanded Moses, all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him with stones and he died. That occurred during the events of time that we're, we're reading this letter, that, that, or this, this chapter 15. It occurred somewhere between chapters 14 and chapter 16. It was written during that. And, and so, <clears throat> but how to deal with that sin, it's going to be dealt with then and, then and there. But also God is telling them when you get to the promised land, you know, this is how this kind of sin this is what the sin is all about. And so these guys, they're not sure. They, they, you know, they, they don't know exactly what to do. They, they found him doing that. It could be that he had maybe just total disregard for the Lord and for his commandments. That could be why that's there. But in any event, they're not sure what to do. And I like that. When you're, when you're not sure to do what to do, seek the Lord. And so the Lord's response, the guy needs to be brought outside the camp and put to death by stoning you go, man, that seems so severe. Again, it might be an example of presumptuous sin that was just described. What was the law about the Sabbath? It goes back to Exodus 31, verse 13. Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. And everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. You might say, well, how does that apply to you and I under the new covenant? Well, first of all, verse 17 says it's a perpetual covenant between the Lord and the children of Israel. You might say, well, what about a Sabbath rest for a New Testament believer? Yes, it's important to have that rest. I think God wants us to have that rest it's important to set aside a time to corporately gather together to worship, just like you folks are doing this morning and those that are you watching online. Setting aside time to worship the Lord. Yeah, that's important. 
We're not to keep working and working and slaving and trying to get more and more and more, you know, more money, more money. If I just work, if I work, you know, 24-7, you know, 365, man, think how much I'm going to get, you know. No, you are to take, you are to set aside time and go, you know what, enough's enough. Enough's enough. I want to focus on the Lord. I want to rest. So, yeah, these are all important. However, Paul says this in Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. See, we're, we're looking at the shadow right now in this, these verses, but the substances of Christ. What do I mean? I mean that this is symbolic for you and I as in, under the New Testament. Hebrews 4 verses 9 through 10 says this, Therefore remains a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. And this is what I think it means. We are to cease from works for salvation. We're not to continue trying to earn our salvation. You can't earn your salvation. And yet people, sometimes they'll get caught up into legalism. They say, well, you got to do this. And if you don't do this, you're not a Christian. Well, if they put their faith in Christ Jesus, they are a Christian. So we're to cease from those works. And I think that's what this is pointing to. It's not Jesus and, and you can fill in the blank, Jesus and legalism or, or Jesus and this other thing. You know, it's nothing. It's just Jesus. Why was the punishment so severe? Think about it. Again, it's the shadow. It's the shadow, but the substance of Christ. See, anything, if you're not resting in the salvation that Christ offers, if you're trying to work for it and trying to earn it or whatever, you're diminishing the work of Christ on the cross. You're saying that what he did on the cross was not enough. I got to add more to it. It in fact says that's not good enough. I don't want it. I want to do it my own way. And there's so many people that, you know, there's many ways to get to heaven. There's many, you know, they, and they have their own way that they want. And, and what they're doing is they're denying the cross of Christ. And it is serious. Because again, there's no other way to get to heaven. There's no other way to be saved but through Christ Jesus. That's why it's so serious. We get to this last portion here of this chapter, verse 37. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel, tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. You shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. Uh, and that the Lord, excuse me, you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. And that you sh may not follow the harlotry to which your own heart and your own eyes are inclined. And that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy, uh, and be holy, excuse me, and be holy for your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So we've got this last thing here. Um, this would apply both in the wilderness and in the promised land. They were to put these tassels on their garments and, and they're told the color of blue. Is there significance to it? Yes. Blue is the color of heaven. It's the color of the high priest's robe. And the purpose for them to have these tassels is to see it and to remember God's commandments and remember the Lord. 
and for you and I, you know, it's, it's, to, it's to have heaven in mind. How important would it be for the children of Israel going through the wilderness to think about, you know, to think about the promised land, to think about the Lord God, to, you know, yeah, I'm going through a difficult time. And, and in their case, they were being chastened by the Lord, but yet in his grace, he's, he's changing them. He's transforming them into a nation that could eventually uh, conquer giants and could take territory. But so through that difficult time, he's having them remember Remember me, remember my commandments. And then when they get to the promised land, it's like easy street. Well, it isn't, right? Because I got to fight giants and everything. But to remember the Lord God. And for you and I, I think the application for you and I is when we're going through a wilderness experience, when we're being chastened by the Lord, sometimes we can get to this point where we think, man, God hates me. He he's, he's wants to destroy me. Now, the Bible says if he, he only chastens those who he loves. So if we're being chastened by the Lord, man, be, rejoice in the fact that he loves you and then allow him to do a transformation in your heart. But it's to keep remembering the Lord God. And then when we get to this deeper walk with the Lord, or you know, it's not like you get to a place where it's like, now I can rest. Now I can, I'm, I'm on easy street now. Now I, you know, I, I've arrived. We've never arrived and so even when we're in that place of blessing, the land flowing with milk and honey, you're, you're growing in your commitment with the Lord and stuff. Don't grow complacent. Don't lose focus. Always keep your eyes uh, on, on eternity and keep the main thing the main thing. And I think that is the picture for you and I. You know, the interesting thing is for you and I, you know, we've sinned, right? There's no one here that hasn't sinned. If the Bible says, in fact, if does anybody here not sinned? Nobody's raising their hand. Well, that's, well, you, you tried to. No, she's. <laughs> the Bible says, if you if you say you haven't sinned, you're a liar, because we've all sinned, and so and God knew that. And guess what? God knows that we're gonna sin. None of us are perfect. We're we're gonna sin. We're gonna miss the mark, and yet, in the midst of all that, He says, when you get to the promised land, here's what I want you to do, and. If you do sin, I have provided a way for you to be forgiven. I, I think that's a comfort for you and I. God is a God of hope. Your worship team, you can go ahead and come on up. Let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer. I'll have you folks stand up, actually. We'll, we'll, we'll pray the Lord standing up here. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, as we've looked at this passage of Scripture, and, and, and it must have been a comfort for the children of Israel. Lord, they knew you were angry with them. Lord, that you were ready to wipe them out. And let, yet, Lord, in your mercy, you still gave them hope that they would make it to the promised land. They wouldn't be stuck in the wilderness forever. And Lord, I thank you that even when we sin, and Lord, even when we will continue sinning, Lord, you still give us the hope Lord, that you are going to complete that good work that you began in us. Lord, you've still, you've given us a, a way for us to be forgiven when we confess our sins. Lord, that you're faithful and just to cleanse us and forgive us of our sins. Lord, we thank you for providing that for each one of us. And Lord, we do, all of us, desire to get to that place where, Lord, we're not just trudging around in a wilderness, but, but Lord, where we're actually in a place where we're, we're slaying those giants in our lives. 
Lord, we, where we are taking territory, where, we're, where we are living that victorious Christian life. Lord, I would pray that for each and every one of us. And as we grow into those places in our walks with the Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would never grow complacent. Lord, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you throughout that, Lord. And that you would keep us humble. Lord, I thank you for the lessons that we've saw in this chapter this morning. We thank you that you are a gracious and a merciful God. We love you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.